everyone, and welcome back to the SFC Book Club, to, where we are once again reading the Revenge of the Sith novelization by Matthew Stover. Today we have with us... Jawa. JC. And me, Noah. And on the docket for this week is chapters 9 to chapter 12, being chapter 9, Padme, chapter 10, Masters, chapter 11, Politics, and chapter 12, Not From a Jedi, which, honestly, those four chapters tell you literally everything you need to know about the plot of Revenge of the Sith. And that's about it, because they're pretty basic. Yeah, you have Padme, Masters, Politics, and Not From a Jedi. Pretty much. Literally the whole plot. This is the exposition episode. Yes. This is the episodes where these are the chapters where not much happens. Uh, there's a lot of talking. There is a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of, I guess, emotional discussion about things going on. And uh, philosophizing. That's a word about the current lives of the Jedi and the supposed lives of the Sith. Yeah, it's it may be um it may seem uneventful on the surface, but in reality there's so much to dive into in terms of kind of the the undertones and subtext of these four chapters. There very absolutely is. So, it's we start this week with chapter 9, Padme. Padme's in it. That's nice. Yeah, the Pat, Padme is in it. The, the synopsis, basically, is that uh, it starts with Anakin and Obi-Wan returning from uh, the, the crash of the Invisible Hand, and as they're going in through the, uh, the Senate chambers, the only thing on Anakin's mind is seeing Padme again, whom he has not seen for about five or six months. Is it the sieges are five or six months. They they don't specify terribly much, although they've seen each other via hologram and stuff in between some of that time. Um, okay. So, yeah. And so the large bulk of the chapter is all about uh, Padme and Anakin, Anakin reuniting and everything they feel for each other. Right off the bat... This was my least favorite chapter. Of the whole book or of these four? Probably of what we've read so far. Okay. I do... We, we've already talked about, like, the amazing characterization they've given to... Uh, to Obi-Wan, to Palpatine, to Anakin, to Dooku. All of that. But I just don't think Padme gets the best characterization also. She is very prominent in this book, and like we'll we'll definitely see more and more of her as it goes along. But Anakin and Padme's relationship, it just feels kind of off in this book. I uh, and that's probably the best way that I can explain it. Do you think it's because the Clone Wars show portrays it differently than the book? Possibly. But I would think so. I, I actually don't think so, based on my problems with it as it's as it's presented here. Actually, my main problems is that 
So, okay. Uh, Anakin and Padme, both in their separate chapters, they, in their uh, separate uh, perspectives, they both talk about how uh, the each other, like, that is the only thing they're living for. They are the sun in the sky, they are the the wind in the trees, they are literally the whole universe to them, and every, like, every single moment is just a lead up to the next time they can see each other. Which is fine, but it feels like it's a bit at odds with what actually happens when they do meet each other, because I would say pretty much every single time they see each other in this book or have a conversation, it always ends with them fighting about something, be it the Jedi, the politics, uh, the new baby that's coming. Um, and it just feels odd. Like, if they if they really did feel that they were... Like, if it was the happiest moments of their lives to be in the same room with each other, I feel like there would be at least some conversations where they'd, like, be be kind and happy and like the whole time and i get that they're you know in a war yeah i was gonna say it it probably has to do with the the strain of of padme and well both of them have to hide the secret but then padme trying to be a senator and then anakin at the same time trying to protect essentially the galaxy so they're both pretty stressed out at this point this is true well um I may have a controversial opinion, at least compared to you guys, is because I feel like what they did with the relationship in this book, I think, best mirrors George's intentions, um, and not in the way of the the chunky dialogue type of stuff, but um, but in the way that their relationship is unfortunately, and Cole Moore's doesn't portray it this way as much. And I'm, I mean, it does a little bit, but um, it doesn't go as far into it because, you know, it may not be a kid's show, but it's a show that a lot of kids watch, and they don't want to promote a relationship like like what we're reading in this book to be what kids strive to have, because that would just be bad, bad role modeling, you know? Um, because they are the good guys of the series and everything. Um, but what's neat about it is I feel like it's kind of accurate to a lot of really toxic relationships that you see in other forms of media or you see you know in your everyday life you know um you can tell those sort of warning signs when um you have a friend who's dating someone and it's like yeah this is just i don't get it <laughs> you know like why are you together why you know why do you talk like things are so great this way or that way and then, in reality, the moment you guys are with each other, you can't stand each other. You know, and it's not exactly how Anakin and Padme are in this book, but to an extent, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. These two are individuals who first met when they were both kids, um, more or less. and um, Padme has one way of growing up and living through palaces and 
um, responsibility and, and, and honor and duty. And Anakin initially grew up as a slave, always wanting to be away from kind of these establishments that would keep him bound in. He, you know, Anakin's arc in the whole saga is trying to escape being a slave. And so he thinks being a Jedi will get him out of that feeling of slavery with Watto. So he always dreams of it. He always wants to come back and free everybody. You know, in his dreams, you know, he would say these things when he was young. But then he becomes a Jedi. And then he feels trapped by the Jedi. He feels like a slave to them because of his emotions. And from there, he finds that Padme has got to be the only freedom that he has from all these things. So in a weird way, Padme really does encapsulate everything Anakin wants because to him, if they could just run off to Naboo and live happily ever after, that would be his dream. You know, more so than being a Jedi, all he wants is freedom. And um, Padme is in a situation where she, you know, she's gone through a lot of stuff as a queen and as a senator. She knows how things should be. And she can't help but have this crush on this darn Jedi that she feels she can't have. And Attack of the Clones definitely plays up the toxicity of that. Um, and Clone Wars touches upon it with Clovis and those things, but for Revenge of the Sith, I feel like George kind of weaned a little away from it so that the emotions would drive more home. Like, we want to see them be happy, even if the dialogue's corny. We want those, you are so beautiful, it's only because I'm so in love, you know. Those things are in there because they want to show they're happy together. But unfortunately, that's not quite what's happening. They're idealizing each other because, to be fair, they haven't been together very much. I mean, yeah, they've been together for, what, three years as a married couple? But this relationship is based off of a few days when they were kids, both thinking of each other on and off for a decade, then a crush and, what, a, a week, maybe two weeks in Attack of the Clones... And then on and off sparsely seeing each other, at least in this book, I feel like in the Clone Wars show, it's more like they, I would assume they probably are together a lot more often. Like Anakin would, instead of sleeping at his, you know, temple room, he'd probably go and be with Padme and 3PO and R2 and all that stuff. But as far as this goes, it kind of seems more like the war has been pulling them apart from each other over and over, and the few times they do see each other, they find that they're either arguing, or they're trying to both escape from the pressures that are on them. Because Padme wants escape too, she wants to get this war gone, you know, even in the, in the movie, she's like, hold me like you did, you know, on Naboo before the war and everything. And, uh, they're both looking for escape, and that's why they kind of like each other so much, is they both symbolize that. And unfortunately, they do fight a lot, and if they don't fight, they're trying to escape. And, you know, sometimes that means they want to just distract each other, do some, you know, get, get their minds off the war. So, like in Clone Wars, they would try to do their little getaways or 
you know, whatever. And other times, to be to be blunt, they they have Luke and Leia. So there's you know situations like that where their relationship really isn't built on very much. But um, that's why when they do interact, they find that those ideologies clash. They both want freedom, but Anakin wants freedom through force, through, um, you know, order to the galaxy. And Padme wants people to have peace and to get, a, get, to get along. And I think they do want the same thing on the flip side. You know, Padme, you know, mentions that she wants, you know, she wants order, but she doesn't want it at the, at the um, cost of having essentially the you know an emperor and anakin's even like you know in episode two he's like well they should be made to listen you know made to understand um so i think it's kind of interesting to see that these two are both so beaten down by the war and all they want is to run away together and it's a really romantic you know idealism that they both share and yet it's the one thing that they can't have because even when they're together, they're both looking over their shoulders, they're both stressing about the war, and they're both fighting with each other because they haven't been with each other very much at all throughout their quote-unquote marriage. So I think it's really in character with both of them and the relationship in this uh, chapter overall. That is honestly something I hadn't considered. So perhaps you are right that I've been sort of idealizing their relationship based on based on the Clone Wars and all that. Say say it with me, everyone. J.C. Filoni. J.C. <laughs> Filoni. <laughs> Thanks, guys. But that is actually, yeah, that is actually a really, really interesting way to read it. And I like it a lot better now. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I still think that Padme's character is a bit at odds with what I'd like to see from her. Oh, like, yeah, definitely. Like, Padme, Padme's character in Revenge of the Sith just, you know, on the whole, is really different from her character in, the like, Attack of the Clones or even The Phantom Menace. Because in both of those movies, she's very... She's very take charge. She doesn't, uh, she's smart. She's savvy. She's almost cunning with the way she, uh, the way she leads Naboo. And then on Revenge of the Sith, she kind of goes, uh, reversed into like a, uh, sort of passive character in the movie with her getting pregnant and then for the rest of the movie doing not very little aside from uh, consoling Anakin. I just like to, I just like to see more of her like firm character return. Yeah. And I mean, to be, to be fair, I will say in, in her defense, she's, you know, she is at the very end of a pregnancy that the father hasn't been around for and is, and has not one, but two kids in there. And she doesn't even know they're twins. So, this girl's been spending all this time fighting strong, and I mean, I know as we go into the, the next few chapters, we're going to get into the, the delegation of 2000, 
uh, deleted scenes from the original movie, but um, just this idea that, you know, Padme's probably, she should really sit down, you know, she should really take take a load off. And so it does make sense, but I feel like they don't convey it like that. They convey it like, I'm I'm here standing around to be Anakin's motivation. <laughs> exactly. Like, I... I understand that that would be, that is a, like, it's a good way to go because it does feel like she, she deserves a break, but I'm not sure the the book or the movie ever truly makes it feel like she deserves a break. Anyway, and then, sorry, I'm randomly, randomly interested in this topic because you just reminded me, Noah, of, um, a scene that is not in the book or the film that George deleted, but it is, I mean, it's canonicities in dispute. I've read it in the behind the scenes books. They had written a scene where Padme, and this would have helped with that specifically making it come across better. Um, and they just cut it because runtime and all that, um, where Padme was, she keeled over and she basically finds Yoda as soon as possible and is like and basically I guess just vents to him the total truth like I don't know about Anakin but she says she's literally like I'm pregnant <laughs> and oh, really? I feel so sick this is beyond our normal medics are able to do um, in you know the 500 Republica and in that in the Coruscanti uh, doctor's stuff and she goes to Yoda and is like saying these things and Yoda puts the force on her stomach and is like you know powerful in the force are they you know, or, or maybe not they he might just say like he senses this power in her and and as Padme is having these labor pain type stuff I mean it's not labor yet but you know as she's having these pains from the Force, um, similar to WandaVision, actually, things start to float around her and go crazy, and Yoda's, like, really surprised. And um, the way George said about the scene is, you know, it, it had to be cut. There was no way it was going to have to, that it was going to stay. But he said that uh, in that moment, as she carried these two twins... Padme had the highest metachorian count of anyone ever because she had the two children of Skywalker in her as well as any latent force sensitivity the same way, you know, Poe Dameron taps into the force when he flies his X-Wing or, you know, all those things that, that have been talked about in canon various times that everyday people have the force in small ways too. That is odd. I did not know that existed. It's very odd. I would watch the Dr. Yoda. Uh, <laughs> yes! The father <laughs> Anakin is. <laughs> I could totally, I'd love that. Dr. Yoda is a parody of Dr. Phil. <gasps> oh no, it's like, not that kind of doctor am I, you know? Okay, moving on. We have the... While I did not like this chapter all that much, I cannot dispute that it is a very important because we have the crux of the entire story 
in this chapter. Anakin has a dream that Padme will die in childbirth. And antics ensue. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, this sucks. All right, I'm going back to bed. That was a sad dream. Roll credits. I think it's it's sad that, like, Anakin almost seals his fate by, you know, saying that Obi-Wan can't help them and that these kids are a blessing, not a problem. Because um, if he had just listened, of course, everything would have gone so much better for for everyone. But um, I don't know if it's that, I guess it's that pride or that desire to save the ones he loves himself. But it's, I don't know, what would you guys say is like the driving thing that causes Anakin not to go the Obi-Wan. There's there's a line um, where Anakin or Padme says to Anakin, uh, she's talking about Obi-Wan, she says, he's your friend, he loves you. And then Anakin, he says, maybe he does, but I don't think he trusts me. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's being nailed home, like, by the Jedi themselves, like, at the very moment, which we will get into. But, um... It's a very interesting sort of another huge parallel between the two that was nailed home in canon with like Satine, for instance. Um, both Anakin and Obi-Wan, when it comes to breaking the Jedi code, they they would ra they would almost rather die than uh, tell the other because they don't want the other to either think less of them or they think that the other would completely turn on them. Which, as like as has been demonstrated time and again, we in the audience know that they would never turn on each other. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, we the audience know that to that point, they would never have turned on each other. Um, oh, yeah. Because they, like, they loved each other so much, but they both didn't think that they would be able to trust the other. And that's... It's, it really is, that is the most heartbreaking part of reading this book for me, because Anakin and Obi-Wan's relationship is so core to this story, and there's so many, there's so many times in this book when if Anakin and Obi-Wan were just honest with each other, Anakin honest about Padme, Obi-Wan honest about the Jedi, this, it, the entire, uh, the whole consequence of the story would have been avoided if they'd only been able to open up and trust each other. I mean, that that's really, in a nutshell, the tragedy of Darth Vader. I mean, alongside the whole, to save the one he loved, he accidentally killed the one he loved, but... Yeah, Palpatine played them like a fiddle. Yeah, it, it's just it's just sad, and I I hate that the very last line of Chapter 9 is just please don't tell Obi-Wan, okay? Uh, it's, that hurts so bad that he can't, he even feels like he has to encourage Padme not to trust Obi-Wan for his sake. And it, it feels like you're being stabbed constantly. <sighs> I, I guess that leads, with this talk about Obi-Wan, that leads in pretty well to Chapter 10, Masters, 
which is very much Obi-Wan focused. And the whole story of this specific chapter is uh, the council makes it clear that they no longer trust Palpatine and uh, they ask, they bring forth this motion. Oh yeah. This chapter makes me so mad. Oh yes. Because Mace Windu and Obi-Wan, they're so close to figuring out Palpatine is Sidious. It's so close. Right. We're, We're getting there. We're getting there. Just let me finish the summary. All I got, like, the summary, like, they, the Jedi Council convenes, and they just, they make this plan to, uh, to investigate the senator, uh, chance, the, the chancellor, I mean, investigate Chancellor Palpatine, because they believe that there is a Sith Lord, uh, controlling Palpatine, and, uh, and so they make the plan to have Anakin spy on the Chancellor. And then, yeah, crap hits the fan. <laughs> it's they're, it's like, they're so close. It, it has to be, the only reason they don't figure out that Palpatine is Sidious has to be like Sidious doing some kind of dark side crap to cloud their vision because they know per, like I don't know what is missing for them not to connect the dot like it's it they say stuff it's like this whole war may have been a plot by the Sith to destroy the Jedi order yeah you think and and it mainly it's Mace's line where he says the dark side of the force surrounds the chancellor and then the next logical conclusion is maybe not the chancellor himself. I, you know, the big blue horned guy, Masamita. I, I think <laughs> you, that you I know, think he might be uh, the Sith Jar Jar. Maybe he's the Sith Lord. He's around Palpatine a lot, right? I mean, Jar Jar is the one that gave Palpatine emergency power. They're both from there's, Naboo. <laughs> there's something about uh, like Clone Wars season seven. And now this book, it makes me just, it makes my skin crawl whenever I hear about the, the goings-on in the Jedi Council, specifically with Mace Windu. What is this guy's deal? It reminds me a little bit of, like, um, something like the... The people you look look the people you look up to aren't as pristine as you think they are. Yeah, like it. Like from the outside, they're like all high and mighty, but from the inside, they're actually almost as corrupt as as some of the the people you consider the bad guys. And I think um, Palpatine gets into this a little bit. He does in the the Darth Plagueis chapter, so I won't go a whole lot into it. But basically, he's like, everything is a point of view; nothing is pure good or pure evil from a certain point of view. Uh, Mace Windu and Yoda—they spend the 
pretty much the entire chapter. Uh, they they never once really put the blame on themselves, which is something I've noticed really, really, it, it happens so many times. They mentioned that, like, the dark side has clouded the force. The dark side has kept this war going. This, the Sith have been the ones controlling it this whole time. Uh, all of the bloodshed is, like, it's because of the Sith. And, it, and if we can stop the Sith, then everything will be fixed. Like, we're, like, we'll be peachy keen. But they just refuse to accept that they are at much as fault as, or even more so, as the Sith. Because the Sith are trying to, they are obviously trying, Palpatine at least, trying to keep this war going. But the Jedi, they let it keep going because they don't recognize their own faults. They refuse to accept surrender. They refuse to uh, read into the Sith at all. And they just... It's all because of their own arrogance and hubris that keeps the war going, almost. And the other thing that really frustrates me about this chapter is that the only one who ever comes close to even questioning the uh, the problems going on is Obi Wan, and anytime he ever does, that uh, he gets shut down. Yeah, he gets shut down, and he's you can tell he's actually been indoctrinated to the point where like if he has too much respect for Mace Windu and Yoda, in that whenever they say something. Uh, to like shut him down, he pretty much immediately is like, okay, sure, and just shuts up. It's funny because I think Mace feels like uh, they talk later in the book about how much Mace loves the Republic and everything, and the idealism and romanticism of what the Republic should be. And I feel like it's from that hubris that he's like, um, oh, well, there's no way we could have elected a Sith to be the chancellor of our great republic you know like it's his personal hubris as well as the jedi's own hubris of well there's no way we could have let you know as an order that we'd let our enemy run the very establishment we we give our lives for like it has to be someone else that's not the top of the chain i think do you think maybe some of the jedi maybe not so maybe only a couple, maybe just like Mace Windu. Do you think Mace Windu starts to think before like Anakin confirms it to him, starts to think that Palpatine really is hideous, that he actually does put the the dots together, but he he doesn't bring it up to the rest of the council because he doesn't want to admit that the Jedi, like you said, like the Jedi don't want to admit that they are under the control of the Sith Lord and that they he's he's gotten by them like right under their noses for all this time. I would absolutely uh, believe that. I think I think Mace's deepest darkest fear is that Palpatine's the Sith. I don't know if he uh consciously knows it the same way I don't think Ahsoka consciously knew about Vader's identity. 
like, you know, how like she was like, I was beginning to believe I knew who you were behind that mask or like when he said the apprentice lives and she's like, you know, this presence that, uh, you know, I haven't felt since the Clone Wars, but she doesn't straight up be like, oh, it's Anakin. You know, it's so hard to believe and to grasp and it would shatter Mace's, you know, point of view <laughs> so badly that he chooses not to because that would effectively be his uh, shatter point. I would absolutely... Uh, <laughs> I would absolutely have no trouble believing also that a lot of the other Jedi uh, were just too stupid to figure it out or like had their heads so far up their butts that they just didn't. Like Especially Keati Mundi. He has a long head, but that entire <laughs> head is just all the way up there. Um, I'd almost venture to, like, to believe with characters that we know to be actually good Jedi, like Plo Koon or Kit Fisto, um, I would maybe even venture to believe that they had such, had this point of view of optimism about the universe that they didn't even really consider their own optimism and, uh, goodwill makes them oblivious to the fact that one of their one of someone that they would probably consider a friend is a sith lord well um the other thing though i think i forget what it was i'm really trying i'm racking my head to remember and i it could have been the clone wars adventures volumes the 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 comics they did around 2003 or 2005 but um i think these clone wars comics did a um an issue, or maybe it was some other legend thing, but at some point in Legends, there is a moment I remember where a Jedi puts together the pieces of the puzzle, and this small group of Jedi goes to confront the Chancellor about something, not realizing quite the breadth of he's the Master Sith Lord, but they realized the Chancellor's working against the Republic. We need to talk to him. Um right now and see if maybe you know maybe he's been coursed into doing the wrong thing by a sith you know maybe maybe someone has been you know kind of grima worm tonguing this poor sweet man but we're also suspicious of him so let's be cautious like keep your hands near your lightsabers fellas and yeah. they go to confront sidious only for sidious to slaughter all of them and hide the bodies amazing and then immediately after he hides the bodies, in walk Mace and Yoda to talk with him completely oblivious. <laughs> That's amazing! He, he shoves the bodies under the under the chair and Mace Windu just sits down. Yeah, no, better yet. He just shoves them under the carpet and they don't even notice. There's a trip. And they're like, mm, you, you may want to vacuum. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think you need to straighten your rug. <laughs> what does that smell? Oh, yes, I was cooking barbecue. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Don't worry, the meat is quite tough. <laughs> oh, I mean, man. if it's a bunch of different species, it's technically not cannibalism. <laughs> 
now the Jedi start to justify cannibalism because of their hubris. <laughs> <laughs> the war the war like stops rations from coming to the temple and they're like mm, well, uh i like seafood hey kit fisto uh, mace, mace windu just says uh i'm gonna go to the archives real quick i'm just gonna erase a couple things and we'll be good oh. <laughs> yeah and, and in talking about this they're almost complete hatred almost, towards Anakin, and Anakin's very existence is very on display. They're upset that he's more powerful. They, uh, they're upset that he has a friend, like, he has an attachment, which is ridiculous. Um, (laughs) they're upset about all of this, and never once do they consider Anakin as, like, an actual person in their discussion. They're always just talking about whether they can make him do uh, what they want him to do, i.e. spying on Padme. And Obi-Wan is making the most half-hearted defense of Anakin the whole time. Mm. Obi-Wan knows what the Council is doing is wrong, but he is afraid to stand up for it because if he does, then he'll get thrown out. Yes, exactly. Because he he even says to Ahsoka in Clone Wars, he's like, the council isn't always right. And he's like, secretly asking her, you know, about this, about helping Anakin. And she's asking him about helping Anakin. But Obi-Wan feels there's nothing he can do. And Ahsoka doesn't tell Yoda and the gang for whatever reason. Anyway. Do you think that um, if the war went on any longer... Do you think Obi-Wan would have eventually left the Order? If it would have gone on... I'm not sure. If it would have gone on long enough, maybe a couple more years, he... And, like, like say that uh, Palpatine's plan uh, needed to take, like, five years instead of three. Um, maybe if it went on long enough and Anakin was... Uh, Anakin got more and more forceful in his beliefs, like, against the Council. Maybe Obi-Wan would have uh, seen the problems and been like, okay, you guys have obviously lost what any semblance of the knowledge of the Force. And so I am going to leave, but I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think Obi-Wan would have... If he would have left, he would have left for team. I could see Obi-Wan also... I feel like the only things that could get Obi-Wan to leave is had Padme talked to him about the kids and he would have been like, I'll come with you. Like Old the Jedi. Uncle Obi-Wan. Yeah, he would have been happy to be the, the, you know, just this kind uncle figure to them and help raise them with, you know, let the parents take some time off to finally have peace because all Obi-Wan wants is for Anakin to be, to be happy again and, and uh, vice versa. Again, it would have been the perfect ideal ending. Um, the other option would have been, yeah, if Satine had lived, there is a chance Obi-Wan could have left with her then. Um, of course, he always says, had you said the words. So in the option that Satine had literally just said, Obi-Wan, I need you to leave the council for me, it would have been hard for him, but he would have left the Jedi. And um, the only other thing about that is, I don't know if Obi-Wan would leave the council 
if another couple years were added on. I think he would try to help the council. He'd be like, he'd step to the middle of the council floor and give this rousing speech about how the Jedi have fallen so far from what they once were, and we've all let our hubris blind us. I've let my hubris blind me. We've been treating Anakin like a tool instead of as our friend and, you know, confidant and, and as a person. You know, like, he is a slave to the Jedi Order. And that's not, that's not on him. That's on us. That's not on the Sith. You know, he would probably get a lot of them to see the error of their ways. And that is, that's a possible. I, I think it could, could go either way, depending on the circumstances. That is true. Sure. Absolutely. I don't think someone like Mace Windu would have been willing to change. Oh, he wouldn't have changed. He would have maybe gone dark side. Yoda, I would have, I feel. Because, like, as we've seen in the original trilogy, uh, take something take something important enough, and Yoda was able to completely change his philosophy about the Jedi. And, well, there we go there. Yeah, I mean, Yoda's an amazing character, because in the you know, everyone always complains about prequel Yoda for having a lightsaber and doing all these things and acting in these ways. They're like, that's not the Yoda of the originals. And it's like, uh-huh, exactly. That's his arc. Like, he, I mean, Yoda never stops talking about failure in the Disney canon. Like, that's all he talks about in Rebels and Last Jedi and everything. He's like, that's his whole, his whole shtick is he's learned and he doesn't want it to happen again. So he's going to start um, making things right. Speaking of Yoda, I think that is another great segue into chapter ten, uh, chapter eleven, politics, because this chapter starts with Anakin going to Yoda for advice. This is a this is a chapter like this is one of the first big uh, deviations from Revenge of the Sith as we know it because of the very big focus on the deleted scene. Um, and the main bulk of the chapter takes up Pat, well, Obi-Wan asking Anakin to follow through with the plan to uh, spy on the Chancellor, and Padme at the same time is being called by Mon Mothma and Bail Organa into a meeting of sen- senators sorry, to discuss uh, what might be done about the worrying implications of Palpatine's current rule. Yeah, um, I love the, the, the Delegation of 2000 subplot. Um, I like the actual deleted scenes upon which the book stuff's based. I, um, I need to watch the deleted scenes because I, I have, I've never watched them, and then I'm dumb, and I didn't know that Disney Plus had the behind-the-scenes stuff. And oh, so really? I'm gonna have to go back and and watch them eventually. Oh, awesome! You'll you'll have a blast. They have a lot of stuff from the books in in there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see because you know Bale and Mon are both really like they're good people. You know they're they're not you know they're not going to extremes like Saw Gerrera, and they're a little overly cautious. Sure. Padme would rather settle things with words, with this, you know, petition thing they want to sign and try to get the, you know, the chancellor to realize what's going on here. 
and Anakin would rather solve every problem with brute force. But, um, yeah, it's weird to think that, in a weird sense, Padme helped incite at least the first seeds of rebellion, um, and, uh, how that all kind of... Actually, I think the, I think the one deleted scene was actually called Seeds of Rebellion, um, but, um, it's just neat to see that, in some little way, she was involved in the beginnings of what would eventually become the Alliance, but... Definitely. That it came at the cost of, we can't talk to the Jedi about this, and it's like, if you're going to join this rebellion, you're going to stand against Anakin. And ironically, that that statement stays true for the next 20 years of Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. <laughs> it really does. And it is very interesting that right, like, right at this time, uh, at the same time, uh, you have the conversation between Obi-Wan and Anakin uh, where Obi-Wan is almost presenting the exact same uh, the exact same possibility for Anakin, whereas like you're fighting against the Chancellor because we fear that he's taken too much power. But Anakin, being Anakin, he will have none of it. It's unfortunate that even, I mean, I know we've talked about Anakin and Padme's dueling ideologies, and when they do complement each other, it, you know, shows their their connection. But with, with Obi-Wan and Anakin, I feel like they're as similar to one another and yet starkly different as you can get. And that's what makes them such a great foil for one another and such a great uh, complement to one another. And you can definitely tell in this uh, in this specific conversation, which might be uh, my favorite between the two of them so far, you can really tell that they're both almost able to come around to the other side. Um, like, Obi-Wan is very clearly very uncomfortable with what he is being asked to do and what Anakin is being asked to do. And you can tell, like, in his, in his heart, he feels that this is not right. This is not what the Jedi are supposed to do. And so, in this conversation, he's trying to justify it as much as he can to show Anakin that it's really not so bad, really. Uh, and then Anakin, sort of having the same thing, where Obi-Wan is explaining the fears of the... Of the uh, Chancellor having this much power to him and Anakin knows that there is some sort of an issue because he even says like well if this is like if this is a problem why did why do the why do the senators keep voting him in why can't the Jedi just do something about it there was a quick uh quick scene between Palpatine and Grievous that we kind of glossed over um which is it doesn't yeah. it doesn't well, add for, much. first it was it was Grievous and Gunray, and then Grievous, Grievous and Gunray, and, and then Grievous and Palpatine. It doesn't. It's not the most important scene, but it is kind of fun to see once again just what Palpatine thinks of Grievous. Mm -hmm. And I uh, actually thought the um, the conversation with with Gunray was a little bit more interesting, just because um, I don't really think much of either character other than just 
Grievous is really cool at killing people, and then that is true. Uh, Newt Gunray is a stereotype and has a lot of money, <laughs> and so their conversation uh, was interesting because I got to see a little more of of both of those characters. Um, on on the topic of the uh, the Palpatine Grievous conversation now. I forget exactly when their conversation is placed in this book, but in the in the film, the way it's cut together is, um, they have the the Palpatine Grievous conversation, and Palpatine's like, "Soon I'll have a new apprentice, one for younger and more powerful," and then the film cuts to the pickup shot, the pickup scene that George filmed, that was Anakin and Padme doing that kind of goo-goo-eyes conversation right before Anakin's first uh, nightmare. And originally, in the book, I mean, originally in the, in the film, before the pickup shots were there, it went straight from, I'll have a new apprentice, far younger, more powerful, and then immediately you're in the nightmare. And it just makes me think, does this... I mean, confirm even more so the suspicion that Anakin's visions and nightmares towards Padme's death are being influenced or even outright caused and planted by Sidious. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, man, there's so many layers. It's like Shrek. <laughs> I I thought this episode was going to be kind of boring, but I actually think we've we've gone deeper than we have in any of the previous episodes so far. Oh, definitely. That gets us pretty close to chapter 12, not from a Jedi. And for those who are at all well-versed in the, the grand scenes of the Revenge of the Sith, then you shall, that phrase itself will be very familiar to you. Also, Jar Jar has joined us now. Oh yeah. Hi Jar Jar. Um, Palpatine calls Anakin to an opera uh, after Anakin has just received a uh, the assignment to spy on him. And as Anakin goes to the opera, they begin to discuss everything going on, and especially Anakin's fears surrounding Padme, which leads into the incredibly iconic... Tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. So, um, one thing I wanted to point out is um, a similarity between the um, the Revenge of the Sith's novels' different way of saying uh, the dark side of the Force is a pathway that many abilities some consider to be unnatural. Um, in the Revenge of the Sith book, they make it more of a... They make Palpatine say it in a way that doesn't cast as much um, suspicion onto him as Anakin potentially could have had, which was actually a neat point. I'm like, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense that Palpatine wouldn't want to um, pl- you know, show his hand uh, too much quite yet. So he's more like, the dark side seems to be, from my reading, the pathway to many abilities, yada yada. Palpatine is very much n- is nowhere near as sinister than he is in the movie. 
and I mean, he's he's not lying still. I don't think Noah. Right, and that's that's been a big thing. Um, it is from his reading. I mean, he it studied all the ancient Sith stuff. So I guess we can mention again. Palpatine never lies. He comes probably the closest that he's ever come in this specific chapter because like uh, JC said, it's all, he's less open about his, he's more open, I guess, where he got the knowledge of the story from in that he's like, he talks about, he did his research and uh, Plagueis, the dark side doesn't seem to be as evil as the Jedi make it out to be. And yes, it is it is dishonest, but it is the truth from a certain point of view. I feel like you could use that defense on anything. <laughs> oh, you, well, you could. But, I mean, it works in this instance, because really, he's not lying. He has He is probably the most knowledgeable person on the dark side to have ever existed. And he totally toots his own horn at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Palpatine, 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 Palpatine. Gotta love him, gotta hate him. <sighs> it's, it's so fun that as soon as Anakin sits down, uh, he's like, the Jedi have asked you to spy on me, haven't they? Uh, I, I thought they might. They, they just... Have they asked you to break the Jedi Code? To violate the Constitution? To betray a friendship? To betray your values? <laughs> he just paints such a great picture of, I've always been there for you, and the Jedi have been breaking promise here and there. And it's just so great, because he highlights the worst of the Jedi and the best of himself to create this totally warped picture that is, to some extent, very true, and yet to some extent the complete opposite can also be given a proper argument. Whenever he talks about the dark side, uh, he's always like, well, think, Anakin, could this possibly be un good in a way of thinking? The Jedi, the Jedi are not the only good in the universe, and good is different for everybody. But then, when he's talking about the Sith as, like, an entity, he's only talking about himself. <laughs> so he, he recognizes that the dark side is, uh, is, like, its own part of the Force, but he almost has the same, uh, he almost has the same outlook as Anakin, in that he sees the dark side as something that will bend to his will. And that is something I never really caught before until reading this and it like reading the uh, reading the this is Anakin Skywalker sections and his perspectives on what the force is to him. And like we mentioned a few uh, weeks ago, he views the force as only something that is there for him just to control, because his will is greater than the forces. And it's almost exactly how Palpatine sees the dark side. It's, or the force 
as Palpatine controls it. He sees it as something that will ne- like will never be taken away from him because he is the sole one true owner of it. Yeah, and I mean, I think Dooku felt the same way when when we went into his head um, about controlling and warping the Force to his will. Um, I think that's a big difference of the dark and the light is generally lightsiders follow the will of the Force or, unfortunately, justify their actions claiming it to be the will of the Force, whereas the dark side says... The will of the Force is subservient to me. I, you know, it's my will that the Force follows. And it's really interesting to see these two sides of the same coin, and even how, you know, one side can so easily switch to the other. It is interesting that the idea of from a certain point of view comes up a lot in these chapters. And usually, uh, especially in chapter 12, this idea is perpetuated by the by the Sith or Palpatine, uh, who is all of the Sith, by the way. Um, it's perpetuated by Palpatine in that, from a certain point of view, the Jedi are evil and the Sith are good. Who are you to say that you decide what is good or what is bad or that one side decides what is good? what is bad i'm usually i'm i'm like i'm not a fan of this this idea in fiction usually because it's used to justify a lot of things that i think are you know i just like objectively wrong and just saying like good is a good is subjective there's no absolute good there's no absolute evil and i don't believe that i think there is absolute good and there is absolute evil but in star wars it's a bit different because the force is the force is portrayed so clearly in a lot of different ways in like the will of the force what the force decides what it wills uh how the force is used for the power it gives and so seeing the continuation of the from a certain point of view idea feels right in this particular instance. But I do think it's very, very interesting to see that Palpatine is the one sticking with a certain point of view idea. And then later in Revenge of the Sith, we get Obi-Wan who is for all intents and purposes, Palpatine's, direct opposite on the spectrum I now believing in the idea of a certain point of view. Man, I need a drink. Chapter 12 is so much about Palpatine's ideology, why he feels he is uniquely suited, I guess, to be the ruler of the galaxy. And so... So looking at his ideology throughout the whole... The, the whole saga, from Clone Wars to Return of the Jedi to uh, Rise of Skywalker, it, I do think it makes this clear tapestry of Palpatine's idea of power and how Palpatine's idea of power is always himself. 
I think that kind of covers the... Does it cover the chapter? Let me see. Because we all know the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. Because it is... Uh, it might not be a legend the Sith would tell you. Uh, but we've heard it many times. So there really isn't that much to glean from the story itself. But really, it is the clashing of the ideology between... The clashing, and I'd say the melding, of the ideologies of Anakin Skywalker and uh, Palpatine. Because Anakin comes into the comes into the meeting full of the... Like, using any anything he can grasp from the Jedi's teachings and trying to cling to them, even if it's weakly at first. Uh, yeah, even when yeah. he's like, the, the Jedi are selfless, they only care about others. Exactly. Like, he's so upset. Palpatine's talk with him is just, every single, almost every single sentence he says tears down another wall of the Jedi's teaching. Another wall of the Jedi's teaching. Another wall. And... <laughs> And by the end of it, you finally get to what Anakin con considers his like true, uh, his true beliefs. And surprise, surprise, they align pretty closely with Palpatine's. I have one note for this entire chapter, and that is that at some at some point we need to read Plagueis. That, that's it. Definitely. Oh yeah, heck yeah! I think we have droned on for long enough, and I think with that, we. We'll be able to call this uh, these last four chapters to a close. If nobody has anything else to add, I think that is a fair place to call it. So, once again, we have been joined by... Jawa. JC. Jarrett. And me, Noah. And this has been episode three of the SFC Book, Class, Book Club. Come back next week where we read... Chapter 13, The Will of the Force, to Chapter 16, Revelation. If you've been reading along, uh, please leave your thoughts down below, and be ready for next week. And, until next time, later.